Welcome to the first official episode of uh, Draft Politics. Uh, we recorded one episode last week to try things out, and this is going to be the first one we're actually going to put out into the world and uh, see what people think. And uh, so, my name's Steve. I'm here with EJ, my partner in crime. Hello, Steve. Welcome half back, I guess. Yes. For uh, for those of us who've listened to the first one, and that would be us, pretty and much, maybe significant others. Um, so, yeah, so we've got our website up and running, uh, draftpolitics.com, and we also have a Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the sort of usual accounts that we need to have. None of them are doing anything much exciting at this point, but we'll, we'll start to do more there as uh, we get further into this. So that's pretty much it. Yeah, and I think this is really exciting for me, and I know for you as well, to be able to kind of get in a groove and start talking about the things that we really want to talk about, politics in Chicago, politics in the nation, the way people interact with one another about these issues, and maybe most importantly, beer and beer in Chicago. Yes. For those of you new to the podcast, the format is politics and beer. So we'll talk a little politics, talk a little beer. We meet at local bars in Chicago and we'll have a beer. And uh, it seems to be pretzels and cheddar dip is our theme appetizer and so that's where we're going nothing wrong with some carbs indeed here at the uh, beginning of a week and today we're at the Eris brewery on Which, irving park in the old irving park neighborhood yeah i've not been here before i'm not normally as much of a cider guy but this is a really cool space so uh, i will very likely be back uh if not for the podcast just for my own fun yeah i would recommend it uh it's in a beautiful old building an old uh, it had been a mosque, and it had also been a mason hall uh, here at 4240 West Irving Park. So swing by anytime. Good eats and good drinks. So uh, normally at this point in the conversation, we'd start talking about politics. But since literally nothing has happened this week, there's nothing to talk about. Oh, yes, there's that whole Mueller report thing, I guess. Yes, but lots of, lots <laughs> of good things have happened this week. Yes. Um, but we're going to start as we usually do, which I say usually, having only done one of these. But we'll start with Chicago politics and go from there. So uh, you want to kick us off, EJ? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the big thing for us right now is just focusing on the mayoral race. So we all know we're headed to that runoff in just over a week between Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot. Uh, there's been a lot, of go a lot going on this week, especially on the Preckwinkle side. Uh, we see her making some interesting decisions campaign-wise. They've pulled TV ads, and the reason was, and I quote, for strategic decisions, unquote. Nobody really knows what that means. And pressed on it several times in some debates this week, Tony wasn't able to elaborate any further than yeah, that. Yeah, and that could mean that the polling's just saying she's not going to win. It could be that she just hasn't been able to get the financial backing to keep running advertisements. So uh, it's hard to say, but neither of them speak well for uh, how her campaign's going. No, and it, you, we've heard a lot of chatter about uh, people saying she's running out of money or doesn't have the right strategy. It's really hard to tell at this point, uh, but there's been a lot of focus especially from her camp on endorsements and surrogates. So going from there, uh, we do have some endorsements uh, to note. Uh, Lightfoot got endorsements from uh, uh, Mendoza and Chewy. Uh, and then Preckwinkle got Chance the Rapper and uh, Bobby Rush. Bobby Rush. Uh, so that's, you know, I don't think there's any real grand shocks in any of that. It sort of aligns with what we've come to expect so far. No, and the interesting thing I would say is that we're actually seeing more 
you know, candidates who ran for mayor endorsing Lightfoot, uh, some other more establishment folks uh, endorsing Lightfoot, which was a little surprising to me. So especially the Mendoza endorsement, I had expected maybe to go to Tony Preckwinkle. Um, yeah, well, and I think a lot of what we're seeing is that the the polling and everything is looking towards Lightfoot as the winner at this point. So you're seeing some of those incumbent powers shifting to whoever is going to be the mayor, and, you know, because that's who they're going to have to work with going forward. Right. And I know that there was a sort of appeal to the Obamas, hoping that they would get into the race. And, of course, Tony had been uh, Barack Obama's uh, alderman at one point and was hoping for an endorsement there. But the Obamas have decided to stay out of the race for mayor. Yeah. Uh, and that really also kind of felt like a bit of a Hail Mary to me. But, again, maybe I'm reading those tea leaves wrong. Right, right. Um, and, of course, we've had uh, some debates, and I think I'm going to just defer to EJ as he actually watched the debates. I, I have failed you as a podcaster by <laughs> not doing that. So uh, I'll let him uh, give you the rundown. Well, there were, there were several this week, and I thought that we really saw a difference of approach and style and, and maybe confidence in those. I, I, felt, I felt that Lori was far more confident in that setting. So these are one-on-one, sort of very conversational with a moderator. Uh, Lori felt far more confident, uh, very quick to answer questions, didn't really seem to get caught up too much. Uh, maybe Tony was feeling the pressure of having to get them absolutely perfect uh, to keep pressure on Lori uh, and keep her image up that she's still viable. Um, and I think Tony is viable, just for the record, but I really felt Lori walked away with, with the debates that I saw this week. Okay. Um, there were a couple of really interesting interactions where I felt Tony had an opportunity to press Lori on maybe her two biggest weak points. One would be just lack of experience and having never been elected to public office. And the other, you know, some donations that she's taken, especially, you know, there were some, some PAC money that's come in recently. And in that first opportunity, Tony really pressed, instead of talking about Lori being not elected to office, she talked instead about her being a corporate lawyer and really attacked on that front. And watching Lori take that in and then immediately turn it around to Tony and say, well, you've taken money from me and my partners. If we're such terrible people, why don't you return that money? And you saw Tony instantly get flustered and not be ready for that retort. And I I thought that was really telling about preparation and expectation uh, from both from both candidates. And then the follow-up about that PAC money, which had been pretty hot button last week. Lori was able to throw something out towards Tony and somewhat redirect it. Tony, instead of letting Lori kind of founder a little bit and be forced to answer the question because the moderator was pressing her a little bit, instead interrupted and sort of made it about herself and got Lori off the yeah. hook. So I thought those were two interesting things that happened around the debates. And I, and as much as like debate skill isn't necessarily what a mayor needs to, to be able to run a city, 
that preparation is is indicative of kind of what they're bringing to the table and, and how far ahead they're thinking and those sorts of things. So I think it's it's a it's useful, um, you know. And as far as just the pure politics of it, you know, Lori's somewhat immunized against that now because Tony lost her chance to really hit her on it. Yeah, I think so. Although her surrogates haven't lost that well, chance. Well, that's true. And I think we'll get to that. You yeah. know, but you know, you look at these two candidates and I think any reasonable person would say they've both got flaws. Yeah. And you yeah. know, it's and how think, you approach those. Yeah, and I think it's just part of and I think this is going to be kind of an ongoing theme of this is, you know, we all live in the sausage factory now. We we all get exposed to this on social media. It's it's very easy to see the pluses and minuses of every candidate. You can see Lori Lightfoot's weaknesses on on dark on that dark money donation or on her uh, service on the police accountability board. And we've talked you know about Preckwinkle and uh, her ties to Barrios and and the machine. And you can see a lot of pushback happening in social media on both sides of that. Uh, in it's very easy to go in and be influenced by that one way or the other. And, you know, talking about last week, like we did about kind of that emotional commitment to a candidate, you know, once you've made that, that investment, you know, that you kind of stick with it, but you still always have that in the back of your mind of those other arguments that other people are raising. And, you know, does that carry into how they're, you know, once they're actually elected, how that affects how they operate and how people see them going forward? Yeah, yeah. It, I, I felt watching some of the surrogates speak this week and talking about some, what I honestly would say are concerns, but things that it would be hard to draw conclusions about for either candidate. But the surrogates on the Preckwinkle side really taking those things to extreme. So, you know, we saw a, a rally over the weekend where Chance the Rapper spoke and uh, Bobby Rush spoke, and their their language was, frankly, divisive, right? It was very much about how Lori is a North Side candidate, how if she's elected, more African-American men will be killed in the city of Chicago because she represents the police. And they connected her to the Fraternal Order of Police because she has the endorsement of Alderman O'Shea. Yeah, and to be clear, she does not have the endorsement of the, the of the FOP. So right, um, and I, it's interesting to see what I've seen in terms of the the push from both sides on this is that the the, the appeals from the Preckwinkle side have been much more emotional appeals for the most part, and the ones I've seen from Lightfoot side have been much more of the logical appeals debating the points that were being put out by the other side. And so yeah. it, it definitely has a feel of Lightfoot being in a more defensive posture, but being that she appears to be the front runner, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's easier for her to sit back, take those things that are tossed at her, counter them, and bring it back to the issues and bring it back to the things that she wants to talk about more frequently. And I think that that's clearly working for her. Now, we'll see in the next, you know, week who else may come out for Preckwinkle or what else uh, is said in that in that discourse. But, you know, I, I, for one, am just hoping that as it comes to a close, we're able to kind of go past some of that really divisive language. Absolutely. That's, that's yeah. Come out. And, and what I'm kind of thinking about it in my mind is 
after we get past the election is what those negatives are that we see about each one of those camps being brought up now are, are metrics that we can use as they go through their their first term in office. So is Lightfoot, you know, is she still getting support from dark money or is she, um, you know, doing a strong effort to reform the police? And in the case of Preckwinkle, is, you know, is she bathed in more corruption? What comes out more about Barrios or any of that? And so that will be the judge of that next four years. And then maybe we come back and make a new decision next time or you know, maybe they get an easy ride into a, a re-election like we're sort of used to in Chicago. <laughs> right. So when we're on episode, you know, 212 right. uh, in four years and we're talking about these again. I think that's almost exactly the right number. <laughs> <laughs> and we can look back and say, you know, are they people using the same arguments? Yes. Uh, are people still concerned about ties to machine or... You know, reforms to the police. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it is, it is truly interesting to me how many things, again, feel like immeasurable arguments that are put up as straw men to hopefully derail somebody's candidacy that have strong right. emotional right. connection yeah. to them, even if they're irrational. Yeah, and just, just to sort of somewhat go tangential from the mayoral election, it's interesting some of the parallels about attacking Lightfoot as a, a rich corporate lawyer type, parallel to the Negron-Martin uh, race for the 47th Ward, and the, the attacks that Negron has put on Martin and saying he's connected all these corporate evil lawyers. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's a common theme of, you know, the establishment versus, you know, people trying to change the system. So. Yeah, and everybody wants to not be the establishment. Right? <laughs> You think at some point the establishment would be like, "Hey, we we got this pretty good." You We're know? Okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> You've got to have something established, All right? And I, again, we're not really talking too much about the aldermanic races, mostly because the mayoral race has dominated everything. Yeah, you know? I mean, the only yeah, forty-seven is the only one I'm actively paying attention to because it affects me personally. But um, you know, we'll we'll probably you know maybe next week since that's you know the week before the election. If anything comes up, we'll we'll bring that up, but. For I think now, it'll be good it all to do seems a, to be quiet. So. Yeah, it'll be good to do a rundown. We know some money's being thrown into some support, some of the incumbents, especially Pat O'Connor, just got another $25,000 from a union this week. Uh, and we know there's a lot of money being put into lawyers in the 25th Ward to serve as election monitors. Evidently, there were quite a few allegations of vote buying and whatnot uh, there for the general. So... Again, I think there are some interesting things happening, but uh, not as sort of all-consuming as the mayoral race. Although I think we have this week in aldermanic crime. Yes, we've got Willie Cochran, uh, who's pled guilty to felony wire fraud. Uh, apparently he was using uh, campaign funds for gambling and other personal expenses. Uh, he didn't run for re-election, so it's important to note that, but... Uh, and I don't know if that's because he, he knew he was going to lose or he was going to be indicted or how that was going to play out. But, um, yeah, so he, he's, he's got some issues now. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of the Chicago way, I suppose. But I thank Willie Cochran for not uh, sort of exposing us to a long, drawn-out trial. Yes, he didn't, he didn't burk it. Uh, he didn't right. run for office and hope nobody would notice. Yeah, Burke Watch hasn't turned up anything this week. So we'll have to see when he's next, uh, next due in court. Right. 
So as we said right at the very beginning, uh, we are at Eris Brewery and Cider House uh, here in the old Irving neighborhood. It's uh, 4240 West Irving Park. Um, this is a brewery that I've been to a few times. Really lovely space. Um, and really, I think, exemplifies the kind of brewery that we have here in Chicago. Yeah. And it's, it's worth noting, Chicago has risen to the top of the charts in terms of number of breweries. Uh, the Chicago metro area, uh, as of uh, 20, December 2018, we had 167 in Chicago. Uh, and you normally think of like places like Denver and Seattle as being the leaders. Denver has 158, Seattle has 153, uh, and it goes down from there. So we've really kind of come into our own. Where I live in Chicago, they've actually tried to uh, label it Malt Row because there's so many breweries in that area. So um, it's, it's pretty cool if you're a beer drinker. I mean, you could pretty much go around Chicago and never drink the same beer twice if you really tried. Yeah, and I think we were joking here, and I just did the Google Maps, you know, breweries near me. There are over 20 within five miles of where we're sitting right here, which really says something. And some great names, too. And not just Eris, where we're at now. Old Irving Brewery up on Montrose, funny enough. But Revolution's pretty close. Off-Color, Pipeworks, Metropolitan, Beguile, Half Acre, Empirical. Just so much good stuff Absolutely. happening right around here. And hopefully we'll, we'll visit them all. Yeah. And maybe you, you well, can well, track us down. We'll start putting things on the Twitters about where we're going to be. And if you find us, we'll buy you a beer on a Monday afternoon. Or for, for a limited time only. Um, one of the things that is a little bit of a challenge for us is we record on Mondays, which is often the dark day for a lot of breweries and bars. So we'll see where we end up. We have to schedule a few days off just to uh, switch up and uh, go to a place we haven't been to before. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so that's kind of like, you know, the, the Chicago and, 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 you know, the places that we've gone to. But, you know, I want to talk a little bit this week about our personal connections with, with beer. Uh, so, EJ, do you want to start and sort of talk about some of your favorites around town? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say that, you know, living in Chicago for 20 years, I've been going to Half Acre for a long time or buying Half Acre beer, super excited when they opened the tap room. Revolution has been a big favorite of mine. And I don't know how people are going to feel about this, uh, but Lagunitas was always a, a, a very popular thing in our house. And when they opened the brewery here, now, while the first brewery was in Petaluma, California, one of the founders of Lagunitas is from Chicago. So they've got a much bigger brewery here. They do here have some the, connection here. Yeah, yeah, much bigger brewery on the south side. It's fantastic. It's a great place to go. Um, I, I've got to say, you know, I could kind of pick seven or eight beers from the breweries around. Uh, just about everything at Revolution is great. Um, so Half now, Acre, for a little context, what are the beers that you tend to like the most? Yeah, I'm a hoppy kind of beer guy. I like IPAs. I'm drinking the EPA, E-E-H-P-A, from uh, Eris today. It's excellent. Um, I really like Antihero as a go-to. Uh, Citra Hero is very nice. Um, I've gotten caught up a little bit in that sort of hazy craze, the New England-style IPA that's uh, really caught fire in the last year or so. I'm yeah, happy with those all the time. And I think a lot of this speaks to how people from very different positions can come together and still, you know, connect. Because he's completely wrong about IPAs. IPAs are terrible. <laughs> uh, 
I, I will say there are some that I like, but for the most part, they're super bitter, and I just have never really been enjo enjoyed them. Um, I tend more towards Belgian beers. Um, inevitably, they're a little high octane, but um, you know, so I have to drink them a little slow. But I love a good, a good Belgian quad. Um, and you know, I will say though, it's like a lot of the breweries around Chicago have good variety. So if you go to Half Acre, I think a lot of their beers tend more towards the hoppier, but they also have really good sours. Um, they have uh, some very good, like strong, you know, barrel-aged beers that I mm -hmm. just kind of, I just love. I love that good malty kind of thick beer. Yeah, and it's funny that you said high octane because I know when I started to really enjoy beer a little more, I recognized that there's a bit of a ABV arms race that happened at some point where they said, we're going to try to make a really good beer that has a really high ABV. Yeah. Um, and especially at the beginning, you really could get uh, button hooked a little bit, not realizing what the ABV uh, was of some of those beers. And yeah, all of a sudden it's 7.8, 7.9. I remember my first time learning that lesson and it was a very rough hangover the next day. <laughs> um, here I'm drinking the Eden's Hazard, which is uh, 6.7 ABV, uh, and it's uh, it's a uh, it's brewed with the saison yeast, so that gets right into my Belgian uh, wheelhouse, and a little bit of tea in there to give it a little extra flavor. It's really good. Um, so that's that's what I'm having today. Uh, and then you're having you look you're, he's looking at the menu right now. Yeah, so I, I, I currently have the IPA, classic yeah. India Pale Ale, brewed with Centennial Chinook and Mosaic hops. 6.7% ABV, and it's excellent. It is really, really good. One By of the way, I should point out on that menu, there's a cocktail. Uh, I believe it's called No Collusion. On the, here, on the back, on the back. It is vodka, coffee liqueur, bitter orange liqueur, outlaw marriage stout. Yes. $11. <laughs> I was half tempted to order that, but it felt a little off theme. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. I also say one of the things that they do that's really cool here that I really appreciate is blends of beers and ciders because they make the ciders here as well. So you can get some really interesting things. Uh, they've got a uh, Foykin Berry, which is a Foykin Haze beer, and this Van Van Mojo cider that is really excellent. It's refreshing. I, I can't speak highly enough uh, for the, the brewers here at at Eris. Okay. I love this place. It's a local neighborhood spot. Yeah. And one more thing about personal connections to beer. Um, I have historically done home brewing. I uh, haven't done that in a couple years now due to a keg spilling, and we won't get too far into that. But um, I am currently trying to grow hops on my deck. So uh, if that all goes according to plan, I will be brewing another beer. And it will have to feature hops, so you might, you might like it. So we'll <laughs> yeah, see how it goes. Gonna, if you're going <laughs> to grow the hops, you're going to have to use them. Pretty much. And I've done it as well. I've brewed beer a couple times. Okay. I have a kit up in my attic that will probably get pulled out at some point when I've got free time. Yes, maybe we'll do a, a, a draft politics theme beer. That would be great. A, a little Belgian, a little IPA. <laughs> <laughs> that can only go right. Terrible. <laughs> well, as this is only really our first real episode, we don't have any sponsors, but that doesn't stop us from doing sponsor calls. So. I just need to let you know that this episode of Draft Politics is bought, brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace, the number one online community for building a site representing your world as a squire and aspiring knight. Looking for your next opportunity 
in a melee tournament or battle? Squire Space. Find your lance today. Now it's time to move on to national politics. We've had a couple things happen, as we mentioned earlier. I think, I guess we should start with Election Circus 2020. Election Circus 2020. Uh, so not a lot to report this week, but uh, and I suspect for the most part this is going to be a pretty quiet section of our podcast until we get into the real thick of the race. But uh, a quick Biden update. I believe uh, the latest reports is his campaign Camaro is still out of gas and uh, he has not yet uh, joined the race. But all signs indicate that he's planning to join the race uh, at some point. One thing that's worth talking about, though, around that is there's been the rumors that he was planning to jump in and make an early uh, uh, claim of Stacey Abrams as his VP candidate. What I had totally forgotten about until this week was that in 2016, when Biden had talked about running and decided not to, he had said the same thing about Warren as his potential candidate. So this seems to be a pattern of his of finding somebody who will be his theoretical VP candidate whether they've bought into that or not is sort of in question. Yeah, and I wonder about that as a strategy generally. I mean, just get in and run, man. You've got... He's in the lead. Like, why is he overthinking this? Yeah, and I guess personally I would say I would like to see Stacey Abrams stay in Georgia, run for Senate, run for anything. I think she's a fantastic candidate. I really like everything about her yeah she doesn't need to get shunted into a vp position agreed please uh yeah so then we go from there to i will always struggle i'll eventually remember his name it's just the spelling is always throws me off so Buttigieg. uh Buttigieg. Buttigieg. okay that's so Buttigieg is now pulling third in iowa uh hard to know what that means at this point i know he's gotten a lot of um strong viral push going and it seems like he has a pretty sharp campaign early on uh you know he's able to get some good stories about him there was a story about him learning norwegian just to read a particular author he liked um some things like that so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the long run yeah i i know a lot of people who are very interested and very excited about him again you know millennial uh has a lot to say very intelligent guy you know, at the end of the day, he is the mayor of a small Midwestern town. I, I don't know that he could carry Indiana, and that is a that is a problem. If you can't lock in your home state, do you think you can be viable as a presidential candidate? Well, you know, and I think it's it, it's a little bit of a hard standard given the the gap between. South Bend as a college town versus Indiana as a whole. But, you know, it is something worth noting. Um, you know, it's just going to be interesting to see how that all pan- pans out at this point. Yeah. I, Again, I like him. Again, think he's intelligent. The stuff about him speaking seven languages, very good stuff for the, yeah. the viral Facebook. Um, what, gives I, him, what gives me a little pause is doing a little digging. I saw that Bill Daly of our former mayoral election – uh, was a backer of him for the DNC chair. So some of those kind of key establishment players seem to be very comfortable with him. And so I'll be curious to see how that plays out as the election rolls on. Yeah, I was not aware of that. Yes. And I, you know, I've been, in, I've been in South Bend a few times as of late, three times in the last couple of weeks. And 
it is a, a town that is pretty typical of Midwestern small towns, at least the ones that I've been in in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. It's pretty standard. So I don't think there's anything there that stands out uh, as you know a gleaming success of his. They do have traffic circles, which I do appreciate. Yes. Very European leftist of him. <laughs> <laughs> big fan of the traffic circle. So I guess we should talk about the really big thing this week. Yeah, what, what, what was it again? I keep forgetting. Uh, something about some sort of paperwork thing. I uh, yeah, some paperwork. <laughs> so, yes, we're talking about the Mueller report, of course. Um, so it's really hard to say a whole lot about it at this point because we haven't seen the report. And the, the way the rules work, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about how those rules ultimately work later on in the podcast, but... The key thing to take away from this is we only know what uh, William Barr is willing to tell us about what's in the report. So he put a letter out to uh, the heads of uh, the, the judicial committees in the House and the Senate laying out his uh, conclusions about all of this. So there's a three kind of main points of that. The first is that he, and he did a somewhat direct quote from Mueller's report saying, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Now, I think it's going to be crucial to understand how specific that is. It doesn't say he didn't commit any other crimes. And also, the quote is notably taken out of context. It's, it was obviously part of a sentence that was longer, but we don't know what that sentence is. And we don't know why any further indictments weren't issued or any of that. Um, the second point is that it was ruled that Trump did not obstruct justice. And I think this is going to be one of the things that's going to be debated very heavily in the next few weeks because Mueller's report provided basis one way or the other on whether you should call it obstruction or not and left it up to the DOJ to decide whether it was. Right. And I think that's really interesting in that it wasn't that Mueller's report said there was no obstruction of justice. What it said is there was not, they couldn't reach a conclusion or they chose not to reach a conclusion. And so then it really came back to essentially Barr, who last year wrote a memo saying, essentially, if you cannot indict somebody, you can't, that person cannot then obstruct. So there are some really competing so if you're successful at your obstruction that means it's okay uh, well <laughs> that's one way to interpret that but yes. i think you know it's not as simple as it's going to be laid out for sure and you know there are some really interesting logical questions that say if the department of justice guidelines say you can't indict a sitting president does that mean that by definition that sitting president cannot obstruct justice about crimes that he cannot be indicted for. And, you know, maybe it's, as the British would say, swings and roundabouts. Yes. But yes. And uh, it's worth noting at this point that there are still investigations ongoing based on crimes that were sussed out in Mueller's investigation. So we don't know what's happening with those. Some of those have been referred to the SDNY, the Southern District of New York. Um, there are potentially state cases that are ongoing. And so 
none of the conclusions have anything to do with that. Um, the thing that's going to be most interesting to see is how much of this report actually comes out when all is said and done. Because if there's, if it's largely exculpatory and says, you know, Trump didn't do anything, then they're going to release as much as they can. If they start piecemealing it and trying to cover up a lot of stuff, then we can start to suspect that there is stuff in there that they just don't want to come out because it is look it makes Trump look bad, even if it doesn't directly connect him to those specific crimes that are mentioned in that conclusion. Right. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, we're not lawyers. I'm not. Are you a lawyer? I, I try to be online, but. Right. And we're going to get scads and heaps of legal analysis from now until the cows come home, yeah. I'm sure. Well, and the nature of legal analysis is it's all language interpretation and all of that. So you're going to see right-wing and left-wing interpretations of things. Um, so I think maybe at this point it's better to talk about what does this mean for sort of our political context now, yeah. now that this is all finished. Um, and so to my perspective, I feel like I'm glad this is coming out now. Because I try to imagine had this dragged out until September of 2020 and they come out and, and, and William Barr is able to carefully craft his message and it all seems to suggest that Trump did nothing. Right. It's an inverse Comey. Yeah. 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 And so they can go out there, put their message out there that everything's fine and, and he did absolutely nothing. And that would be what would lead us into the election. Now we're before the Democratic primary. We have plenty yeah. of time to see how this is ultimately going to play out. And I think ultimately the good candidates are going to focus on messages that have nothing to do with Trump's potential criminal activity. Yeah, absolutely. I, to me, look, to be perfectly honest, I don't want a sitting president of the United States to be indicted. Even if I really dislike the current president of the United States, that doesn't really serve many people. I, I would much rather be moving past it. I would like the candidates from the Democratic Party to be focusing on winning because we have the better message. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I want to see, if there are criminal acts, I want to see an indictment because, you know, the president can't be that far above the rule of law. And I understand that there's some allowances we have to make because sometimes laws have to be bent to certain circumstances. Like, I'm enough of a... Real politique guy that I'm like I get that but you know I think for the purposes of our political strategy and how we deal with getting rid of Trump none of that really needs to come into play it's got to be about health care it's got to be about affordable college education it's got to be about jobs it's got to be about wages if not more so than jobs yeah and to be clear I think a president should be indicted if they've committed crimes I would rather not to be in the position where it's clear that a president has committed crimes oh, and needs to be absolutely. indicted. Yeah, and, yeah. Okay. You know, to me, I think Donald Trump won because he had a populist message. He has failed to deliver on that. I would want our candidates and eventually the candidate to be so strong on the right message and not sort of praying for rain that Control the things that they can control. Yes, absolutely. And and trying to run an election on the hope and prayer that, you know, the, that Trump is frog marched out of office is not a good strategy. 
Absolutely. Hope is not a strategy. Especially because Pence is going to be there. So, <laughs> Unless that perfect scenario plays out where Trump and Pence are both arrested simultaneously. You're right. And President Pelosi steps into power and, this, and then disappoints all progressives. But <laughs> I thought Marlon Bundo would be next right. in line after Pence. Right. I mean, but it, it is, you know, interesting to me. You know, we've kind of gotten through that first mini release. And truth be told, is really they're that much different from this week to last week? I don't know. Probably not. Um, but the talking points have instantly changed. The talking points sort of. Ooh. Yes, capital T, capital P. I think you, you had said something interesting earlier about Devin Nunez. Yeah, so <laughs> Nunez comes out and he's saying that they should burn the report because it's a partisan you know, witch hunt document. And it's like, all right, well, so on the one hand, you're going to say the document exonerates Trump and he's done nothing wrong. But, uh, but then you're going to go the other way and say, but we should get rid of all of the underlying evidence. So something seems a little off there. Now, granted, I'm not going to give Nunes the most credit for being a sharp right. knife in the drawer, but... I mean, I believe Devin Nunes is the guy most often associated with that guy when somebody mentions his name. Oh, yeah. Like, how many times in the last couple of years has somebody said, you know, Devin Nunes, and somebody else says, oh, yes. that guy. You need an eye roll in there, and yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so... I mean, after all of this, does that take impeachment off the table? Well, I think it's one of the things, and this all came up, uh, was it last week or the week before, where Pelosi had uh, said that, you know, basically there wouldn't be impeachment. It's does not politically advantageous. Um, the push towards impeachment needs to continue in the sense of you must keep investigating because there's clear evidence of criminal actions there's i mean we know pretty certainly at this point that trump had michael cohen go out there and you know and pay hush money to cover up things at, against election law so a felony election law violation at the order of trump so that's a crime and it is something that is clearly impeachable now whether it would rise to the level of impeachment such that republicans would be on board with convicting that's always going to be the problem with any of this. But you should still do the investigations and you should still let that information come out. And I feel like for two reasons. One, it, it does hurt Trump to see that dirt coming out on him. And two, it shows to the people in the base that you're, you are fighting and you are trying to do everything that you yeah, can. The Democratic base. Yes, the Democratic base. Yes. Right. Yes. The Republican base, not so much on board with this. No, not so much. Well, <laughs> they might be, actually. You know, I think they like that feeling, you know, Trump is being attacked and they're being attacked. Well, yes. You know, in absentia almost. And I, yeah. you know, I, I heard a, a couple interesting quotes and one of them was, not every crime is an impeachable offense and not every impeachable offense is a crime, which... Which is a very nice way of saying, well, it could be anything. Right. Uh, li li lying about a blowjob is a crime, apparently, but not felony election law violations. So there you go. And with that. <laughs> the, uh, so also, when you look at the way the Constitution is written, it's very vague, right? High crimes and misdemeanors. This is the parsing of words that has to happen when you look back at the Constitution. Um, what does that really mean? It could mean whatever it means in the time. And so at the end of the day, 
and this is the second thing I, I wanted to bring up around this, is Nancy Pelosi said that one of the bars for impeachment is bipartisan support. And so that may mean it's off the, the table. It may not, but yeah. it was one of and, the things that she had tossed out there. Yeah, one of the things that well, I think fundamentally frustrated me about what she was saying was the implication that the process of impeachment is irrelevant because the politics don't support it. And I'm of the mind that if he's committing crimes, then you have to hold him accountable. And, and our failure to do so time and time again is part of the reason why we have Trump in the first place and that he's able to do the things that he's able to do and get away with it. So I guess that's, uh, that truly begs the question, um, is an impeachment process that is guaranteed to fail holding someone accountable? I think it is. I mean, it's doing what you can do. And there is two, two elements of it. One is in the process of having that impeachment trial, you're putting all of that evidence out there, and that all gets out into the media and circulates around, and people can see it with their own two eyes. And the other part of it is when you get to conviction, somebody has to vote against it, right? You get them on the record saying they're against it or they're for it. Now, granted, I say that, but then we've got the McConnell factor here where it might not even go to trial in the Senate because they'll just not do it. Um, <laughs> you know, Republicans in the House will be forced to vote on it, but, right. you know, he won't. I could just imagine McConnell. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what, what impeachment? I know nothing. I've got nothing. I've I don't even work here. <laughs> just keep sending me the checks. That's all. Yeah, that's that's all he's looking for. And I, you know, I think I, I have this underlying feeling about the way that things tend to happen, where the outcome, regardless of the very tangible upfront outcome, has a secondary or tertiary outcome of undermining trust in institutions and you know i kind of want to put a pin on it or put a pin in it in on it's yeah i don't know which way that works (laughs) um and talk about that a little bit more later but i i think it's an important thing to note right even if we get to the end we get this report you know most people trust Robert Mueller has done a job that he believed in. Yeah. And it's given to given out as the summary report to start and there will be other things for sure that can be claimed as some level of victory by people who want to cherry pick things out. And so that Yeah. And I was having a chat with somebody about this today where they were basically saying well, what did you expect? Like, this was all rigged from the beginning and all the power, none of the powers that be want this to come out and impeach Trump. And it's like, that's that's way too cynical for, like, there are, I feel like this is an interesting sort of test of our democracy right now is seeing how the institutions of democracy that aren't necessarily democratic, but like the people who are held over between administrations and the people who are part of the FBI who are, there for their careers, how they affect the outcomes of this and how that protects or doesn't protect, um, you know, our democracy. Yeah, or heretofore known as the deep state. 
And I think that's one of the interesting things. They were the deep state when when Republicans thought they were out to get Donald Trump, and now maybe not. Maybe they're okay again. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, somewhat tying into what we talked about much earlier in the mayoral election, if somebody is at all against you, they are 100% evil. They are some other that you need to talk about. Yes. Um, Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about the special counsel and what the special counsel is supposed to yeah, do? Yeah, and, and it's, it's <laughs> I, I kind of like went through this today as I was trying to figure out like, what is kind of the history of this? And I feel like Republicans have managed to take advantage of this the whole time. But let me, let me run through the history of this real quick and we can talk about it a little bit. So obviously we didn't have a special counsel statute uh, during the Nixon administration. And it was Nixon and Watergate that got everybody to recognize that there's a need to have somebody independent of the normal Department of Justice chain of command who could do investigations in an independent way because the president might, in fact, commit crimes and you need somebody who's neutral to uh, be able to investigate those. And so they set up these statutes. And um, those statutes existed with some reforms largely through uh, 1999 is when they, they finally expired. And as you might expect, the reason they expired was because of how everything unfolded with the, uh, the Clinton scandal and Monica Lewinsky and all of that. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the history of it, the original uh, special counsel was brought about to investigate Whitewater, which was a financial investment deal that seemed to have some nefarious underpinnings. And so that's why they went to investigate. And nothing ever came of Whitewater. But what happened was... Um, the justices, so there's a panel of three judges who are given oversight over uh, the special counsel under the original law. So the the, uh, attorney general finds their, makes their original findings, they go to that panel, and then they are able to appoint a special counsel. So getting back to Clinton, uh, Starr was appointed as... Kenneth Starr. Kenneth Starr, thank you. Uh, was appointed as the special counsel by that panel of judges who were Republican appointees. And so when he started with Whitewater, he then kept trying to expand his scope. And none of the Democrats were on board with Starr in the first place. And then he kept expanding his scope, and the Republican judges signed off on that expansion ad infinitum. And so it goes from Whitewater investigation to finally being perjury over Uh, sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. And so at the end of that, you know, the Democrats and Clinton are obviously not on board with the way that the statute is written, and so it goes away for the most part. What happened is they replaced it with a basically an executive order that set up federal regulations that created the concept of a special counsel, but it was purely within the bounds of what the attorney general could do. So that gets us to what happened with Trump, is that the attorney general appoints a special counsel. They get to define what the scope of the investigation is. And we've seen in this case, it seems it was defined very narrowly to only affect specific crimes related to Russia uh, collusion. And, uh, and it also makes it impossible to have any oversight in that. So Bob Barr, or Will, excuse me, Will Barr, William Barr. William I, Barr. I don't know why Bob Barr, I keep getting mad. But uh, William Barr doesn't have to go before a three-judge panel. He just makes his own decisions uh, about what what goes in, what isn't, and what he reports ultimately to right. Congress. Right. I, I mean, it's kind of fascinating to think 
that the statute says, or the, the guidelines really, they're, they're somewhere in that sort of ether between you know, a written statute and something that's just created ad hoc, but it is the executive branch, a political appointee of the executive branch, having purview to investigate the executive branch. Yes. So it's hard to say that it wouldn't at all be partisan. Again, one would like to trust and like to think that a political appointee uh, could be nonpartisan, could say, this is my job, this is what I'm supposed to do, you know, and for a while, for a long while, the reason that the Senate required 60 votes to approve an appointee was so that you would have somebody that everybody felt comfortable with. Now we're in simple majority land, which maybe casts some doubt on that, right? So you sure. just need a simple majority of the Senate to approve it. Anyone that counts for the Attorney General, for members of the Supreme Court, and we feel and see that tension and that sort of brewing mistrust about whether or not someone has the best interests of the country as a whole at yeah. heart. Yeah, and it gets back to sort of the way that our government was set up in the first place, because our assumptions in the Constitution are that the branches of government have an inclination to further their own power and to check the other branches of government. So the Supreme Court will want its power and check against the executive who tries to intercede right. with them. The problem we have, though, is that because we've aligned again into two parties and that the and that is calcified over time, we have a situation where the parties cross a, a, across those branches and the same enforcement mechanisms don't exist anymore. As a Republican president, you put a Republican Supreme Court justice in place who makes decisions that get on the next Republican candidate for office into power in spite of the fact of him losing the recount if you did it the right way. Oh, boy, let's not go there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think that the assumption that the individual branches of government would balance one another out because the country is the overriding thing or maybe their own branch self-interest, which is pretty cynical to say, but that's now been overridden by some sort of party self-interest. Yeah. And it's not, and not everybody obviously falls into this. I mean, I think, I feel like in the end, Mueller, though he is a Republican, is somebody who has largely devoided himself of that party interest and has tried to work in the interest of the, go of the government and the country as a whole. We, once we see his report, hopefully that'll give us some more insight in that. But that's, that's been my vibe of it. Yeah. Um, you know, Comey, a little more of a mixed bag, but I don't feel like a lot of his decisions were not good, but I don't think we're driven from a party politics dynamic. Uh, no, unless that party is the James Coney party. Right. Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think he's, he's a good publicist for James yes. Comey. Yes. Yes. I, you know, and I, I look at, and I think this is also timely, when I think about people or politicians that I would have respected for sort of holding to that ethos, one of them would have been John McCain, who was this week attacked by President Trump, because why not attack a dead man? 
He tra- dragged his body out of the ground, right. took him around the Oval Office a little bit. Yeah, when you're in a plant that manufactures uh, Bradley fighting vehicles and Abrams tanks, let's find a decorated war veteran who it, and senator who has recently passed away right. to malign right. in a pretty vicious way. You know, you, you know, sort of mind blown at that to some extent, like sort of why waste your time, but also, you know, he was somebody that, you know, while I did not vote for him, if I spoke with somebody else and they said I chose to vote for John McCain, I wouldn't have questioned their sanity. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Unless I said, you did see Sarah Palin's name underneath his, but yes. John McCain on his own was somebody that had a long history of you know, upholding that idea that the Senate is the world's greatest deliberative body. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and, you know, I mean, I think that a lot of a lot of what drove him was his own ego. But, you know, every so often that worked out well. I mean, his 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 dramatic thumbs down in the Senate uh, on the vote to get rid of basically all of our health care <laughs> was pretty impressive. So, you know. Yeah. And really just to kind of tie off the special counsel thing and i just did want to mention this because again in nobody's paying us to say this a podcast that i listened to that was very good about special counsels and whatnot was the slow burn podcast you can find it on slate Uh, they did two sessions one was about watergate one was about uh, monica Lewinsky and everything that happened with with Bill Clinton, it was fascinating. You heard a lot about not only the way that the special counsels worked at the time, but also some of the subtext to some of those things. And it really yeah. is worth a listen. So if you want a once little bit done with ours. deeper look at it and not the sort of having had a beer, vague covering of it, that's probably where to go. <laughs> uh, in full disclosure, I'm uh, halfway through the hazy IPA that they have here. At Eris, which again is fantastic. It's called the Foykin Haze. I think it's on tap all the time, New England style IPA. Yes, and I'm having the Divine Marriage, which is a cider combined with a stout, which is a fascinating combo and I actually really like it. It's very different. And really served in a nice snifter. Yeah, I like that. I'm, I'm a big fan of the snifter. Fancy. If you've reached this point in draft politics here at Eris Brewery, thank you so much. I hope that this was time. Well spent. Uh, maybe next time we could start our podcast by talking about what beers the podcast pairs well with. Uh, but I think this this is the end of episode one. Pro, pro tip, it'll be all the high-octane ones. <laughs> <laughs> Several. Maybe we'll, in the future, we can tell people when to open another beer to be keeping up with the conversation. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so that's it for this week. Uh, we're going to try to keep our good recording schedule getting out early in the week. Uh, just kind of depends on when we get at it time and all that. But thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll hopefully catch you next time. All right. Thanks, everybody.